Hi everyone. Earlier this week, I chatted with Tracy Haddon Lowe about the future of cities and particularly the challenges that they are facing and some policies that we can use to address these challenges. Basically how to use housing policy, transit policy, labor policy, taxation policy to deal with urban inequality, with rising crime, with unaffordable housing, with empty offices and beyond. Tracy is a fellow at the Brookings institutions, particularly specifically in Brookings Metro. Uh, she's also a data scientist, a PhD uh, in planning and a former local government representative. So she's very familiar with uh, both the theory, the numbers and the practical challenges of turning policy into something that actually makes an impact. And in her day to day, she researches the interaction between real estate, urban policy, and housing issues. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, maybe Tracy, I'll, I'll throw it to you. What does it mean to work for a think tank that, uh, that kind of tackles urban problems? What does a day in the life of Tracy Haddon Lowe look like? That's a great question. So um, working at a think tank means I do research about urban problems full time and that I do that research in a very specific kind of way that's intended to um, change the real world. So I focus exclusively on research. Uh, you know, unlike a professor, I don't have any teaching responsibilities. And the audience that I do my research for is the city leaders that are responsible for stewarding our urban places every day. So the language that I use uh, to communicate my findings and the mediums in which I publish my findings are all targeted at that audience as opposed to an audience of other scholars, my peers. So you're not a pundit on Twitter, you mean? You're like a serious person and <laughs> you write for people who are actually uh, supposed to be taking your thing seriously and, uh, be and making big you, decisions based on that. <laughs> before COVID, I think maybe I did think a big part of my job was being right online. But the pandemic was a really big wake up call for me in that there is no point to doing what I do if it isn't helping people and places. So it kind of helps sharpen my thinking in terms of the kinds of projects I'm working on, how I spend my time and the, and how I evaluate whether I'm successful or not. Um, it's not enough for me anymore to like get retweets <laughs> or whatever. I want to um, actually shape policy and to, um, and to help um, the people who are trying to help places get the outcomes that they want. That makes sense. And I think obviously it's clear now beyond your personal journey, that cities really need a lot of help now and are kind of grasping at all sorts of new ideas and are open to them uh, because uh, they, they basically must. Uh, a, a quick housekeeping announcement. I know that it always happens. People who are watching us on LinkedIn, sometimes the default, it just plays without sound. So you have to unmute it on your own uh, device or screen. It's usually somewhere on the, on the video window. So we are broadcasting with sound and everyone can hear us. So if you can't, you have to click something uh, somewhere. Uh, so Tracy, when you look at cities today, what are you most worried about? I'm most worried about inequality. Um, it's what I was most worried about before the pandemic, but it, um, it was really scary how much worse inequality got along a lot of dimensions during the pandemic. And 
Uh, I see the real world consequences of um, extreme and worsening inequality every day. Like for example, um, I, uh, I just got back from a funeral um, of a, uh, a public sector employee who was, uh, who was murdered um, while intervening to prevent a mass shooting. That's uh, the, the public transport in the train, right? In Washington? Yes. Yeah. And so you mentioned inequality, a big word. I think people understand it in different ways. Can you flesh it out for us a little bit when you're saying concerned about inequality? What does it mean? Maybe give it some color with some numbers. And uh, what yeah. are the consequences? Why should we worry about it? So, you know, in practical terms, um, what concerns me about inequality is when some people and some places have the things that they need in order to have access to opportunity and a good quality of life, and other places don't have those things. Because uh, I'm not saying everyone has to have the same things, but that I think it's important that, um, that everyone has a chance. And uh, whether it's uh, transportation and the number of jobs that are uh, within a 30-minute trip of your house, or whether it is the cost of housing in your area, or whether it's the wages that are available for jobs that you can get. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to measure inequality. And um, what I am working towards is an economy in which um, everyone can do well <laughs> and have a chance to provide for themselves. Before we get to like each of these individually and think a little bit about policies that can uh, alleviate them, are there any examples, whether it is comparatively within the US or elsewhere of cities that are doing a better or worse job at it that could kind of help us visualize, you know, the, the difference between a city that is uh, more equal or, creates more equal opportunities compared to a city that doesn't? I think that um, every city is struggling with this. And so um, it's hard to find um, examples of places that have already achieved uh, shared prosperity. That is, you know, uh, it, right now in many ways, it feels like an elusive goal. Mm -hmm. But uh, a place where I've been spending a lot of time lately and that I think there are important lessons to be learned is Chicago in the United States. I think that people who aren't from Chicago, um, you know, maybe they hear a lot about gun violence in the news, for example, and they think like, oh, this, <laughs> this is a place that has problems and, uh, and this isn't a good example, but actually, you know, Chicago is a place where um, the cost of housing is much more attainable than most other, you know, big high growth US cities. It's a place where there are a lot of jobs and the, a lot of those jobs are accessible to a broad variety of, of people. And it's a place where the city leadership is making a really concerted effort to link the well-being of the entire city's economy with the well-being of each neighborhood through really carefully designed policies. And I'm really impressed with the work that they're doing there. So I didn't plan to dive too deeply into Chicago, but it is actually interesting. 
so the, the you know the common narrative on places like Chicago, I'm sure a lot of people just heard what you said, say, yeah, of course it's affordable. You know, it's a city that got hollowed out with you know the America's industrial base basically moving first maybe elsewhere uh, on this continent and then moving beyond plus automation. So of course housing is affordable because there's just not a lot going on there. But in the same breath, you said it's also a place with a lot of jobs, uh, which I, I guess would surprise some people. So the reason that even though there's economic growth and jobs and housing remains affordable is because of some unique magic formula to Chicago, or is it because there's just still enough supply that uh, like demand still didn't catch up to supply, even though it is growing. But at some point we should expect Chicago to have the same problems that other prosperous cities are, are suffering from, or like what are those specific policies that you mentioned that, that um, make things certainly. better? Certainly, like post deindustrialization and post suburbanization, um, Chicago is benefiting from the fact that it just has the infrastructure, whether it's housing or transportation or whatever, to hold like a million more people. So uh, it, it is that that extra capacity that is helping the city in some ways, but also, um, you know, what we've seen uh, in the last 20 years, 20, 30 years, is that the biggest US cities. Um, have been doing better in the transition to from a service economy to a knowledge economy mm -hmm. uh, because they have a lot of talent and they they just agglomerate a lot of different kinds of jobs and that inherently lends itself to innovation. So, you know, Google is just opened up a huge new office in Chicago, but there's also a lot of growth in agricultural tech and food science in Chicago, um, which makes sense <laughs> um, given Chicago's history in the food economy of the United States. Um, and uh, there's also just a lot of um, labor in Chicago. There's, there are still a lot of people there. Mm -hmm. And so companies that need workers, um, you know, even if it's just a call center, for example, Chicago is an attractive place to go because um, it's a really tight labor market right now, and you can find workers there. Hmm, makes sense. So let's try to dive into a few specific policies, both like tried and true or innovative to, to address inequality. Uh, and maybe we'll start with housing because we already touched on that, and that's probably the one of the biggest things on, on people's minds. Uh, what can we do to make housing more affordable? So... The vast majority of housing in the United States is produced by the private sector. And the only way to make it more affordable is to control the costs that go into producing housing. Mm -hmm. So there's a few basic categories of that. There's the cost of land, the cost of materials, the cost of labor, the cost of capital, and uh, the cost of, uh, you know, marketing finishing, whatever. Yeah. So um, there is a limited amount that the public sector that we can do to control any one of those costs. Mm -hmm. um, but anything that we can do to get those costs down will help the sector produce more housing and to make that housing more attainable. And what have cities done to, to affect any of those levers successfully that other so, cities can learn from? Um, making publicly owned land available for development is the most obvious way to control the cost of land because it's already owned by the public sector. And, um, you know, 
especially in legacy cities like Chicago that have experienced population declines, there's there are large amounts of publicly owned land. But even in high growth cities, like on the coasts or in the Sun Belt, um, it's very common to find, you know, big parcels of publicly owned land and making those available for affordable housing is a sort of like obvious first thing you can do. So the second thing that I think there's um, a lot of room for improvement on is the overall cost of construction, which mm -hmm. is driven in large part by just how complicated it is to get projects done the regulatory requirements, the building code. There are a lot of things that cities could do in order to reduce the cost of construction, whether it's um, slashing the cost of hookup fees to utilities or um, uh, providing automatic approval for certain types of designs or floor plans. And then uh, cities can also address the cost of capital. So um, many cities now have affordable housing production trust funds and they can use those public funds in order to uh, make available um, attractive financing for the production of affordable housing. All right. And any cities, again, here doing it better than others or like paving a path or setting any case studies that, that others can learn from or be encouraged by? Yeah. So I live in Washington, D.C., and I think that um, D.C. has done a lot. It to uh, open the spigot in terms of housing production. But even in a place like DC, I think that um, there is a, there's still a lot of room for improvement. So I don't think that there's anyone out there who's best in class. And this is something where I think there is just across the board, huge opportunity to address what is the number one cost for US households. And I see a question from the floor already. Maybe I'll I'll even feature it from Joe Weishar. Hi, Joe. Uh, related to, to housing and, and incentivizing and capital costs uh, in Detroit, and I know that generally in the air at the moment, there's a lot of discussion of land value tax. I think Tyler Cohen at Bloomberg just published something actually against it today, but at least kind of uh, keeping the discussion alive. Uh, any thoughts on that? So this is one of those things where the devil's in the details. And this is true about everything that needs to happen for cities right now. Like it's not as simple as just writing a listicle on, on a website like, oh, convert offices into housing, invest in public spaces. It's like these things are like hypothetically good ideas, but you have to work through very carefully what the details are and how to do it in order to make sure that you achieve your intended consequence and not unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. Land value tax is one of these things that I think does have strong potential to uh, reduce barriers to reuse of land that has already been developed mm -hmm. um, or to incentivize the development of vacant land. But you ex exactly the details of how you do it are very context sensitive. So for example, in a city like Detroit that has huge amounts of publicly owned land and huge amounts of vacant land, the, um, the, that land is not currently producing anything from mm -hmm. a tax revenue perspective. So a land value tax that would um, increase the carrying cost of that land doesn't affect um, 
um, a municipal land bank. Um, while yeah. it, but it, what it does do is at least not create a tax penalty for improving the land. Yeah. Do you but see though? It still doesn't. It doesn't really address what the economic issue is that is a barrier to uh, development in Detroit, which is weak demand. Yeah. Um, in but higher cost cities, I think that a land value tax done appropriately, especially for commercial real estate, makes more sense because it can really facilitate um, the adaptive reuse of existing commercial real estate. That's what I was thinking that, I mean, even the Tyler Cohen piece from this morning, I don't know if you've seen it, but for those not familiar with the term at all, you know, land value tax in super, super short is basically taxing land just for, for being there and uh, not taxing necessarily just the economic activity that happens on top of land as we currently do, which means that it will uh, theoretically encourage people to put land to always its, its highest and best use at any given moment, which means like converting it to things that are being used, building more housing on top of it. Uh, or even if it is already put to good use and it's kind of monopolizes something in a way that generates a lot of revenue to make sure that we capture more of that revenue and we spread it to other places and other things that can benefit uh, society as a whole. Uh, I know that the Tyler Cohen argument for this morning focused more on like a place like Palo Alto about housing, single family housing, specifically how to upzone that areas. But one thing that struck me that he was kind of sidestepping or ignoring was the the more relevance of, of this solution maybe to cities that are already prosperous, like New York or like maybe San Francisco two years ago, uh, that now have some assets that are already built. The density is already there. So it's not about upzoning, but it's just about, okay, should I keep an office building empty or a strip of shops empty? Or does it become unaffordable to me now as the owner? And I'm forced to actually put it to a different use in order to be able to afford uh, the carrying costs. So it seems that I think we're, we share the same view there. We'll come back to offices, uh, to housing conversions, I think, in a moment. But I want to touch on a few other policy levers that you mentioned. Uh, the second one is transportation. Uh, what can cities do here to to tackle inequality? Why is it so important? And, and who is doing it well? So it's really important because transportation is the number two biggest cost for households. And so in the context of an economy where there are some people who have very low incomes relative to the rest of the population. One of the easiest ways to help those people other than just giving them money <laughs> is, to, um, is to address their highest costs. And um, especially if you live in a place where you have lower access to the good things in life, whether that mm -hmm. is as simple as groceries or whether it's as important as uh, a, a broad variety of jobs, um, providing good transportation access to those things, that's something that people need and it's also something that people want. So uh, doing something about that is really meaningful to improving people's quality of life. And the best way to do that is to support transit. And all of those things cost money, right? I mean. Now we're looking both at a situation where cities are struggling and at the same time, we're basically demanding them to get even better at what they do uh, and be even better than what they were when they were a little more prosperous. Uh, 
how do we how do we pay for all this uh is there some kind of period of transition where we just have to assume there'll be a shortfall and i don't know the federal government steps in are there other strategies uh how do we finance these kind of extra investments both in development and in transit so i think you're raising a really important point here which is that i don't think it's going to work to leave even the wealthiest cities in the us at least on their own in order mm-hmm. to pay for uh um some of the adaptations that are going to be necessary to adjust to just like what the pace of change during covet has been um and i and then also you know some of the infrastructure improvements that are needed are these are regional infrastructure improvements that are bigger than any one city so there is a role for the federal government here a role mm-hmm. that the federal government has always played in um especially making uh you know, one-time capital available in order to make these adaptations and improvements. And related to this, I see a few people in the comments are uh, angry about us not mentioning zoning yet, which seems to be such a big deal in terms of, again, both upzoning and how we, we use land and not just in terms of different uses, but also how we use public space and parking space and uh, kind of valuable land uh, in the broader yeah. sense possible. Yeah. So like- So let's put that baby to bed really fast okay is that I've written a ton about zoning and uh, and the barrier that zoning is to uh, both mm-hmm. addressing inequality and to uh, uh, you know creating a, a productive built environment so you know I think that these points are out there and that um, uh, what I am focused on now in my work is not you Um, just being right over and over again about uh, you know I've been talking about the need for zoning reform for 20 years now so um, I think it's important that people also understand that zoning reform is not a magic uh, solution that's gonna um, you know fix downtowns and and segregation um, I absolutely believe that we need zoning reform but there are other reforms that we need too and my role is Um, that that I play in the ideas ecosystem is to stay out at the edge and keep mm-hmm. pushing for the other things that no one's talking about yet that we're also going to need not just to repeat points I made 15 years ago about how we need to abolish single-family zoning and how um, the word mixed use zoning is a paradox is <laughs> or an oxymoron let, let me let me tease out a, a specific angle here that that might be more on on the edge or at least like very timely and relevant like tying the, the last two points that you made uh, so we have a situation where it seems like the federal government is increasingly needed in order to kind of reposition rejuvenate uh, help cities adapt uh, to some extent also state governments are are required to step in into cities but uh, At the same time, one of the issues, particularly in the US with zoning, is that it's very, very much controlled, very close to the ground level in a way that means that you know, on the one hand, you can say it's very democratic, local communities can decide whatever they want. On the other hand, it means that you know, you're getting infrastructure funded by a whole city or a whole state or even a whole country, and you're not putting this infrastructure to its best use because of your local choices. Uh, so that was always a... a A point of contention uh, and that seems to be rising up as well I know in various states most recently here in New York the governor said that you know she wants to force some places outside of the city of New York City to up zone 
to build more housing basically around uh, state-sponsored uh, train stations. Uh, do you see some opportunity here for some sort of realignment where we tie these two issues together, where we say, okay, we, you need cities need more help from states and from the federal government, which includes a lot of new investment in infrastructure. And in return, we want to rethink zoning or at least to uh, change the balance of power between kind of the, the broader interests of, of the whole country or the whole state and whatever local communities have the power to vote on. Yes, I think that's something that we absolutely have to do. And I think that we do already see signals in the policy space that both a, a variety of red and blue states and the federal government are trying to think about how to link these two things together. You know, the bottom line is that we um, experienced um, multiple generations of growth in which we were able to act essentially like resources were unlimited land was unlimited and money was unlimited. And in large part, the way that we've reacted to the crisis of COVID is to just do that again, to do that thing that we know, which mm -hmm. is turn the money printer on. And in reality, none of these resources are unlimited and we need to start working smarter, not harder. Where I see us hitting limits here is that um, I think we're still just kind of toying around the fringes. So for example, if you look at our infrastructure spending, we'll come up with like one cute little million dollar program that's like incentives for municipalities to, you know, upzone where there's infrastructure capacity. But then we'll have a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending that we're just pouring down the same old drain that mm -hmm. we have always poured it down. And there's a real lack of leadership at every level about uh, what it would take in order to start re There are extremely powerful political interests that are really invested in the status quo as it is, and that aren't the ones who are gonna feel the pain as the status quo starts to fail. So how we get out of that political paradox, that is the part that I think no one has figured out yet and that absolutely is keeping me up at night. So one, I think the, the optimistic view here is that, you know, some of that status quo is just being demolished by, by reality. You know, a lot of people who are holding on to very valuable assets and that used to be very politically powerful in cities are just now themselves kind of uh, getting desperate. And I think over the next 18 months, they're probably going to get even more desperate. Uh, I see on the horizon and between the lines, it, it seems like what you seem to be talking about as well, like, you know, potential for some kind of urban new deal of sorts. That's right. Of like, you know, the federal government and state governments and cities having to sit together and reshuffle a lot of things uh, in order to address all sorts of policy outcomes that, that, again, that are important beyond the specific neighborhood or even the specific city uh, for the economy as a whole, how to create more opportunity, how to enable more people to enjoy the fruits of prosperity uh, and how to at least moderate the income inequality to uh, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, before we run out of our official time, and we are going to stay longer and take on some more questions, I, I want to I want to touch on a couple more specific uh, topics. One is so we office office to housing conversions came up, and I know that's a very kind of hot topic at the moment as well. Uh, how feasible is that? What outcome should we even aspire to here? Like I know you've written a bit about you know. 
do we want to turn CBDs into just like any other residential neighborhood? Do we want something else? Is there some kind of relationship between good housing and good jobs? Like, how do we, what do we want to achieve and, and how should we think about it? Okay. So first off, I think the feasibility is um, a, a distraction from what mm -hmm. we need to really be talking about right now. Um, just realistically, um, if a building is obsolete and not useful anymore, then either it will fall vacant and be abandoned or somebody will pick it up and do something else with it. They'll just figure out how. Adaptive reuse is just problem solving. There are people who love to do this. Any problem can be solved. Uh, if it can't be, just tear the building down and put something else there in its place, mm -hmm. right? The issue is not the feasibility. It's how much it's going to cost and who's going to pay, right? And then also the kind of the scope and scale, like how much of this um, really needs to happen and at what pace does it need to happen in order to uh, address some of these uh, more like placemaking level impacts that are coming from having a lot of half empty offices, uh, you know, which is more of the public problem than just like one half empty office is really like, sounds like that building owner's problem and not anybody else's problem. So, Again, I encourage everyone to drop more questions because we're going to give them another 10 minutes or so. But there's my last official question uh, to Tracy. So we spoke, you know, we spent 30 minutes. It went by really quickly uh, on, you know, some of some ways to 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 revive cities, uh, to improve them and to tackle urban inequality. Uh, and I feel like there's a bigger question behind all this. You know, when we see now the world getting reshuffled with remote work and people making kind of different choices, and are liberated to make those choices. It brings me to the question, rhetorical, of course, but I'd love to hear your answer. You know, why should we even save cities at all? You know, why why not let the chips fall where they may and and see what happens? Like, what is the historical role and importance of cities, uh, and how do we expect them to be important to our future as well? Yeah. So I think for people like you and me who spend a lot of our lives online talking to other people it can be easy to lose the threat on this. So um, looking at the commercial core of the top 45 US cities, um, we are talking about in every single case, not just in coastal superstar cities, but mm -hmm. in every single case, we're talking about the single biggest and densest job center within, that in, within each of those entire regions, mm -hmm. okay? And not just by a little bit, we're talking about a job center where if only half of the jobs come back to, you know, in-person work in a typical U.S. downtown and 100% of the jobs come back to every other job location um, within that region, and that is an extreme and ridiculous scenario that's definitely mm -hmm. not going to happen. But even if that did happen, these commercial cores would still be the biggest and most important job centers in their entire regions. So this is not just about cities and it's not just about the people who own property downtown. These are the single most important nodes in our regional economies and thus our overall economy. So their well-being is something that concerns all of us and is not something that we can afford to let fail if we want to have a successful economy that provides for our needs. Well said. Let's try to pick up a few questions from the floor. Uh, 
So Greg Walters, how do you see the work from anywhere revolution impact on, on inequality in relation it's to cities big. and I guess more broadly? Mm -hmm. Right. It's big. So like, you know, work from home is kind of a metaphor for inequality and in that some people from work can work from home and some people cannot. And so, you know, so already you can see like uh, that it, it, it's simply uh, it's simply a metaphor for it. But um, I think what Greg's getting at is that, you know, remote work has the potential to make inequality worse because um, workers who have the ability to work remotely are typically significantly higher income mm -hmm. than other kinds of workers. And so the idea that the highest earning workers in the economy now have the ability to physically withdraw from all other people yeah. is that is something that it's, it's not hard to imagine what the implications of that could be for inequality and just for um, social cohesion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at the at the heart of COVID lockdowns, I think there was a, a really striking chart. I think it was the Washington Post where you see people who can work from anywhere, particularly white collar, you know, tech, but not just tech, uh, really a slight kind of dip in employment, but then very quickly going back to normal and even growing. Well, on the other hand, people who can't work from anywhere are just experiencing the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. And both of these things happen in parallel in the same world, in the same place. Exactly. But people, ex people experiencing completely different uh, realities. Obviously, I agree with you and I've written a lot about, you know, I also think that remote work will, will have a, will increase inequality, at least left to its own devices. But uh, the solution is, is not to ban remote work or something yeah. like that. Remote work is absolutely here to stay. The trick is figuring out how to make remote work work for us mm -hmm. and not against us. Any thoughts on that so far? <laughs> so, you know, I, I do think that a big chunk of the answer here is going to be um, significantly re-envisioning where local governments get their tax revenue from. Mm -hmm. um, the way that we tie um, uh, taxes related to um, you know, economic production to place, um, first of all, inhibits remote work, right? It means that like all but the largest employers can't just allow their employees to live anywhere because then they'd have to comply with the tax laws <laughs> of anywhere. And that's a huge, so that's a huge barrier to unlocking the possible dynamism of remote work. While at the same time, um, you know, it leaves the, the local governments left behind by remote work really short revenue, right? And Philadelphia as a city that's extremely dependent on wage taxes, revenue that only comes in if the workers are physically present in the city yeah. immediately comes to mind as like, that is something that's gonna have to be rethought. And the city of Philadelphia can't do that alone. The state of Pennsylvania is going to have to be a partner in um, coming up with something that is viable and equitable in order to make sure that governments have the revenue they need to deliver the services that they're responsible for. So related to that, this question from SV, uh, you know, it seems like our system, again, US centric, seems to have allocated disproportionate political power to, to rural and suburban areas, particularly you spoke about the importance of those hubs, those cities, those dense areas to, 
to everything around them, you know, sometimes to tens of millions of other people who don't necessarily live in that city or even within the metro. Uh, I know that Richard McGehee re recently published a book about that as well, and Equal Cities, about the fact that systematically we're basically uh, design a system where all of the people that benefit from the existence of the city don't really participate in maintaining the city, including in addressing a lot of that inequality. So the city creates wealth for everyone, but the people in the city basically don't get enough back from all of those other people that <laughs> that their existence contributes to. Uh, are you so saying the suburbs are a Ponzi scheme? <laughs> They're not a Ponzi scheme, but but yeah, I mean, you know, I I live on on a suburb of New York City, very very close to the city. I can walk to the train station. Uh, you know, the train station is five minutes from my house, and it takes me thirty minutes to get to the center of Manhattan. And yet I'm not allowed to build anything but a single family home on my plot of land. I would happily turn it into a six family or a 12 family. Of course, some of my neighbors might shoot me for saying that. Uh, but somebody paid to, you know, to create that train line. And more importantly, you know, I benefit from being close to the city. Uh, and I'm not paying any taxes to the city because I'm just not part of it technically. So I pay my property taxes to my local town in order to finance the, the local school and other things. But New York City gets almost nothing back from me, even though I'm getting something out of it. Uh, how do you see it? Um, you know, I think that that has uh, that's been a dynamic, uh, an American dynamic since the beginning of this country. And so I um, I'm not invested in like a fantasizing about a utopia where we 100 percent solve it. Right. It's so, like you're talking about New York. Plunkett of Tammany Hall was writing about how mad people in Albany made him, uh, you know, more than 150 years ago. So um, I think that this dynamic is always going to exist to a certain extent and that um, uh, we, uh, that what we need is a feasible amount of intervention by states and the federal government in order to um, stabilize cities and uh, and prevent uh, the worst case scenarios um, from becoming reality. So I'm looking for a pragmatic center left coalition mm -hmm. <laughs> that will um, invest in transit in a new way and that will um, uh, make minor tweaks to the tax code, including the tax credits that are available and how they're distributed in order to let cities save themselves. So maybe we'll take just a couple more. And again, feel free to, to drop some more if something strikes me, I, I might extend it a little further. This question from Doug is interesting. I, I'm going to rephrase it because it's long, but it also maybe expanded a little. So he's talking about, you know, in the Bay Area, it seems that during COVID, uh, we kind of did a lot of kind of ad hoc things that turned out to be really cool, you know, converting parking spots into outdoor dining. Uh, and now we seem to be going back to, <laughs> to what we used to, like we're canceling a lot of initiatives that seem to have already taught us important lessons about stuff that actually really works and is really nice and makes the city better. Uh, I'll expand it even further. There is a lot of stuff that we know that is really good for cities. Uh, why is it so hard? <laughs> why do we keep going back and, try and trying to learn the same lessons? Uh, what's preventing us from just 
sticking to to how things are for example parking you know it's really between the the, the government and itself it's not like anyone owns it and they have to expropriate it from anyone the streets the city governments can decide tomorrow that you know there's no more free parking uh, and that you know restaurants can have outdoor dining or that you know at least trash could be on on the road instead of on the sidewalk uh, why is it so hard simple question of course <laughs> so I think I think some of it is just a lack of imagination about what's possible and just so you know I think you will find in the United States like somewhat of like a lack of awareness amongst the kind of the average person even like the average urban leader about mm-hmm what cities are like globally. And I'm not just talking about Europe. (laughs) Um, So I I think some of it is that, but some of it is also that cities are extremely constrained in their ability to adapt. It's not as easy as just like, oh, I snapped a finger and then I got rid of all of the parking. Okay. If a city is going to get rid of all of its parking, that means that they are going to forego all of the revenue that they currently derive from parking. And cities need to have balanced budgets. So that revenue has to be replaced by something else. So that means that you have to believe that, for example, the additional sales tax revenue that you might receive from reallocating that space from car storage to retail or in food retail in particular, that that um, would be uh, that, that that you would actually see that trade-off work out. Um, that requires uh a leap of faith on the part mm-hmm. of the city that requires um, a CFO, um, you know, who's who, who uh, you know, isn't extremely conservative, um, you know, in how they make revenue estimates, and you know, not. Well, and of every- course, the federal and state probably help yeah. as well. That, that we discussed. Yeah, and not, and so not, and not every city has those things. So yeah. you know, in order to. Um, Uh, And then I think also the important thing to understand specifically about the COVID moment is that a lot of these um, uh, kind of like pop-up or pilot um, reallocations of public space, they're just pop-ups or pilots. And so, you know, they're not like flawlessly executed, right? There were, Mm -hmm. there were like also some problems with them. And in order to make them permanent, there are capital costs associated with like making these kinds of adaptations properly. So, once again, now we're not just snapping our finger. We're not just replacing lost revenue. We also have to pay for capital costs. And that means that means also accepting the disruption of, for example, like maybe some amount of construction to like build a plaza, you know, or mm-hmm. uh, redo curb and gutter for a big new bike lane or something. We have to accept construction right now, accept construction right now at this moment when um, you know, people are, we're trying to like get more people to come downtown and don't necessarily want them to find like we ripped up all the streets. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's just like, it's just a tough moment. It's a tough moment for cities revenue wise. It's a tough moment for them to, you know, when construction costs are really high to commit to making these kinds of investments. And so I, I think, um, you know, some cities are in a financial situation where they are able to use their ARPA dollars to do these kinds of improvements. And you're seeing that. But other cities are really kind of stuck in more of a quandary and are having to just use their ARPA money in order to replace lost revenue and to and to bail themselves out. So it sounds like a lot of what we're discussing keeps boiling down to that urban new deal of sorts of like, OK, there's a lot of stuff that even if we experimented with to really apply it on a broader scale, there's budgetary issues here that cities will not be able to handle. 
on their own or at least out of their own free will? <laughs> Not on their own, but cities can also do more with what they have, right? Mm -hmm. I think there is all, there is a need for cities to do everything that they can within their own power to um, revise their tax codes and to reevaluate how they're raising revenue. And then also to think about um, how they are uh, making investments in order to generate more leverage for mm -hmm. the city in the future, um, you know, which this applies to everything from publicly owned land to, you know, uh, public investments in private projects. So maybe we'll end with with one final question to try to be optimistic or practical. Uh, so what do you see as the low hanging fruits at the moment for cities? What are some two, three, four, one easy things that every city can do tomorrow or at least within the next 12 months that would make a, a meaningful impact on, again, on inequality, on economic vitality, on opportunity? I'm about to make some commenters so happy by saying zoning. <laughs> I think that it's time for U.S. cities to move to the next generation of how mm -hmm. entitlements are made and managed and that there is a way to do this that is both um, a lot more flexible in terms of what the entitlement grants to the landowner, but also a lot more fruitful in terms of what the entitlement yields to the city as a whole and to the, the greater society, the public. And uh, the cities that are not just like tweaking at the fringe with a little bit of incentive zoning here and there, mm -hmm. but are thinking really big about just how are these entitlements created? Who are they for? And how are they allocated? Um, you know, this is, this is a money printer that cities can just turn on and they should. Excellent. So Tracy, it sounds like there's there's a lot more for us to discuss. Uh, for everyone who found this valuable, keep in touch, follow Tracy and I on Twitter. You can see our handles at the bottom of the screen, at Jorpoleg and at Low Places. Thank you everyone for watching and for listening. Jor, thanks for having me.